I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about what's happening in Europe, we have with us Politico's senior editor, Ryan Heath, who is the author of the very famous Global Insider newsletter. And he's also authored Politico's UN Playbook, Brussels Playbook, Davos Playbook. He's the author of two books and is on TV all the time. Ryan, welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So, Ryan, we've just seen a seismic shift in the United Kingdom, you know, the the death of Queen Elizabeth, King Charles finally assuming the throne. Uh, But at the same time, we've seen Liz Truss replace Boris Johnson. What do you make of all these changes? and, and, And what are you seeing as the future of the United Kingdom? There are so many layers to all of this. And and let's not forget, it's not just Liz Truss. She's the fourth prime minister in six years. So to go from a single party, they didn't even change who was in power. So one monarch in 70 years, prime ministers four times over in six years. Uh, I think in the UK, there's nothing inevitable about the kingdom splitting up, but it does become more of a live question. I think one of the things that outsiders might not fully comprehend is is how much the Queen acted as a kind of connective tissue, certainly, but also as a kind of suppressant of difficult debates and discussions. And we all know that Scotland voted on whether to become independent in 2014. So the Queen is never able to silence these debates. Australia also had a vote on becoming a republic in 1999. But the debates become easier now that you have Charles in charge because he simply isn't as popular. He comes from a different era where he's had all his baggage on the table for 30 years. He's seen as a human being. He's not seen as this untouchable, otherly being the way that the Queen was. So I definitely think in our lifetimes, we can expect to see Northern Ireland become part of the Republic of Ireland. It's very possible Scotland may leave. And then separately, when you move it out to the Commonwealth, it's almost like we're going to have a two billion person version of the American Black Lives Matter movement. And it's going to unfold in different ways at a different pace. But a bunch of things that people in former British colonies weren't able to address because of their legal systems at the time or because of the sensitivities of people still being alive and being sort of key actors in the situation. As those people pass away, it becomes easier to deal with that history, but that becomes really complicated for Charles as the head of the monarchy. It's interesting because we're watching all this pomp and circumstance surrounding the Queen's passing, and it and it is beautiful and impressive and, and captivating. We can't keep our eyes off of it. But as you just pointed out, underlying all this, there are some very real issues facing the United Kingdom, not the least of which, you know, they keep talking about how, you know, Charles wants to modernize the monarchy. What exactly does that mean? Does he mean they're going to rely less on taxpayer dollars? Does it mean that he's going to give back some of the land that the monarchy has? What what, what are all those things there? Yeah, that's a really tricky question. I don't think it means a massive slimming down of assets, for example, but what Charles has done. So he um, was in charge or was gifted the Duchy of Cornwall. And that 
sounds like a par- parcel of land. And in fact, what he did was establish things like organic food brands in leading supermarkets and designed villages that he thought were more sustainable and delivered a better sense of community than some of the more modernist villages that were being created and towns that were being created after World War II. So he's always been an activist in that regard. So modernizing, I think, means changing. It doesn't mean getting rid of. It doesn't mean feeling ashamed of what the monarchy is. I think it's about leveraging what the monarchy has. It may mean a slimming down in terms of what are known as the working royals. So kind of by default, that's happened with Prince Harry. But you saw Prince Andrew's children, they're not working royals either. Prince Anne never wanted her children to really have those titles or to do that. So I think you're going to see it basically slim down to the monarch and the heir, and it's going to be a real Charles and William show. And Charles will have to, in essence, tamp down his instincts to be really outspoken on issues like climate change. But those views are not going to disappear. And in Britain, they're seen in much less partisan terms than they are in the United States. So I think you're still going to see him give speeches on climate change, but maybe he's not going to write aggressive letters to ministers in the way that he used to. Why can't he do that? I mean, you know, he has been a champion of the environment. Why as king would he do less? I think part of this is about Britain's framing of a constitutional process. And that's tricky because they don't have a written constitution. But We have all these fractious debates in the US now about rule of law and how to uphold elections. Now, you didn't have elections in a monarchy, but the pomp and ceremony is the process. And so going through and upholding precedent, whether it is in the 10 days of mourning and all of these ceremonies you'll see over the coming week, or whether it's how Charles behaves as monarch, all all of that is the glue that is the equivalent of the written American constitution and separation of powers and and all of that. So I think they take that very seriously. One of the reasons the monarchy has survived is the monarchy knows its limits. And so Charles has had better training than literally anyone in history. He's been training his whole life for this. So I think he does understand that he's no longer Charles. He is the king. And, And just as the queen had to change and change with the times, he'll do it in his own way, but but you're also going to see him transform. It's really fascinating to watch all of this. I mean, even subtle things like at Westminster Hall this morning, Prince William is in military uniform, but Prince Harry isn't. And, you know, a lot of us might not understand why that is. Wasn't Prince Harry famously, you know, a soldier first? So w- what's going on there? I don't understand all of the levels of it, but essentially Harry was uh, had withdrawn um, all of his honorific military honors and, and and titles. And so I think possibly he could literally put on his regular army combat uniform, whatever the basic level is, but that's also going to look pretty weird compared to, to, to William. Whereas Charles did not have a distinguished record in the military and there's oodles of badges and medals that he can wear. Uh, so yeah, it is awkward and, I, and it must be terribly difficult for the two of them, the way William and Harry were forged in some very difficult times and circumstances. And it clearly has been a really tough time for the two of them. And I I know that communications folks, and I know that it's not pleasant for any of them to be involved in what's been going on in the past years. And part of that is William's transformation as well. They're no longer two virtually twin brothers. One of them is the the heir apparent now. And 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 that that's tough. He doesn't he doesn't get to be William from the block. He has to be the heir to the throne. Yeah, that's a big, <laughs> that's a pretty big change. I mean, it, it, and it's quite apparent now. 
Let's talk about what's going on in other places in Europe. You know, of course, Ukraine comes to mind right away. This week, we've seen Ukraine starting to turn the tide. Russia may be on its back foot. What's your readout of what's going on there? Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that it's happening. But I think like a lot of official sources, I'm surprised by how quickly there's been a turnaround. And I, and I guess some of that comes from it's been promised for a long time. And then one of the other skepticisms I have, and I, and I never really know how to fully measure it, but we hear a lot more about the commitment of military and civilian aid to Ukraine, and it's less clear what actually arrives. And I'm not in any way suggesting there's corruption or anything like that. I think it's just basic problems in defense procurement and, and other systems like that. Um, and Europe talks a good game, but doesn't always deliver what it what it promises. So I think we've seen less than half of what has been promised to Ukraine actually arriving in Ukraine. But the heavier the artillery, the more of it that arrives, the easier it is to identify the gap between all these people who are fighting for the literal survival of their country versus people who've joined the army for a salary. Like there's not many people truly fighting for the Russian motherland in this situation. And, and I think you're starting to see that on the battlefield now. And that gives me some confidence that Ukraine can achieve a real victory, not merely some kind of livable peace settlement. But that's going to be difficult. And Vladimir Putin's a very unpredictable character. And we're now starting to see all these critical voices being directed towards the war effort, which is one step away from directly criticizing Putin. And you don't know what a unstable person is going to do in that situation, especially one with nuclear weapons at their disposal. So, you know, I don't want to make any big predictions because it's still pretty dicey. It is worrisome with them on their back foot in this way, because you do think about nuclear weapons. You know, as you just mentioned, there's been some real criticism of the war effort, if not of Putin himself. Something like 50 mayors signed a letter yesterday criticizing the war effort. It, it has to hurt the Russian public when they know that they've lost 25,000 soldiers to fatality, another perhaps 60,000 casualties, meaning taken off the battlefield for one reason or another, you know, severe injuries, capture, et cetera. We've heard that there, there's so many POWs in Ukraine that they're having a hard time housing them. What are you seeing from the Russian public? Are they losing the appetite for this war, or is there still a, a wave of nationalism sweeping over Russia? It's actually extremely hard to get a grip on that. One, I don't speak Russian is the first problem there, um, and that's the problem most of us face. But the ability to do opinion polling in Russia is extremely limited, so you don't get those kind of representative samples that you might get in a democracy. The Russian media space is being sort of upended in the most extreme and terrifying ways where everything becomes entertainment or propaganda. It's very hard to have rational public discussion about anything even approximating this in Russia. So yes, you're seeing it, even nationalists sort of get angry. But we know from other factors like the rise in a virtual private network traffic, we know the heavy use of encrypted apps in Russia. So it strikes me that there is a it's a sizable minority that has always been skeptical of Putin and now has lots of arguments and data and, and anecdotes to fuel that fire. And then the people who are dying, their families, probably most likely the ones that are part of that information terrible vortex. So you're starting to see it all bleed over, I think. I think it's very hard to give you sort of boundaries and numbers on it. But clearly, this becomes a very unstable situation. It becomes harder and harder for Putin 
to manage. There's only so many bodies you can literally bury before people start to notice and, and ask questions. It's interesting what you're saying about, you know, there, there's a lot of underground communication of information going on right now. That's always the case in Russia, but I would imagine under this scenario, it's really ticked up. Yeah, I think that's right. And we just know it from too many sources that we can be confident in that. And then the question becomes, is there some kind of military faction that tries to take out Putin? Does it come from intelligence services? We, I think a lot of people thought it might come from the oligarchs, but that comes, there's a twofold misunderstanding there. One is that quite a lot of oligarchs are totally happy with what goes on because it's the system that made them in Russia. And the others don't have a lot of political influence, let's say. So all those people who thought, oh, well, we're just going to threaten the oligarchs losing their super yachts and then they'll turn on Putin at the beginning. That didn't work out. I think you're much more likely to see something coming from the military and the intelligence services. But that's tricky because that is Putin's literal core territory. It's where he came from. It's exactly what he built up in order to create this police surveillance state that he has now. So again, you know, it's kind of a fool's game to do the predictions, or at the very least, you need a lot more intelligence at your disposal than I have. What do you expect from Putin's meeting with Xi Jinping of China? Well, I, I, I don't know, to be honest. What I'm more looking at is the G20 coming up in a couple of months. You know, I think they go through the motions on Thursday in Uzbekistan and talk about their great friendship and how they're going to keep trading with each other and, and they're going to work with all these other global outcasts and so on. I think what where the really interesting discussions come are in the corridors at the G20 in Indonesia in November. And that's because there'll have to be a lot of choreography about whether or not Biden and the Democratic leaders uh, do engage directly with either of them. And the fact that, you know, it's nice for friends to get together at the G7 and at NATO. It helps to organize some kind of unity on issues like Ukraine, but it does not solve global problems. You can't just talk to your friends if you want to tackle a global challenge like climate change. If you're going to deal with our hunger crisis, if we're ever going to get some kind of resolution in Ukraine, it's not going to happen by democracies only talking to each other. And so that real action is going to occur in Indonesia, and it will be bookended by uh, the midterm results in the US, because it will happen about 10 days after those, and it will occur in parallel to the COP27 climate summit. So there's going to be a lot of action at that uh, November meeting. Ryan, let's talk about something that's a little bit under the radar for most Americans, but is a really important thing to watch. Sweden has had a knife-edge election, as you've reported, and the far right has really gained in a major way. And you've talked about this in terms of a European right wave. Tell us about what's going on there. Yeah, this is really tricky because we'll only know the real answer probably in about two weeks' time, not just in Sweden, but because Italy will have a snap election on the 25th of September. And what I think could happen is you see Liz Truss, who, while she is being forced into a bunch of seemingly socialist policies around capping energy prices and so on, like her, her gut instincts are all free market here. He is really out there when it comes to how to handle Brexit and trade policy and things like that. And you can pretty much make an arc between Britain 
the Swedish Democrats who've been brought in from the cold, they were previously isolated for decades. Their background is out of a group of former neo-Nazis, and they're now in a right-wing bloc in parliament, and that might see them join or lead the government. And then the arc swings back down to Italy, where a woman called Georgia Maloney might become Italy's first female prime minister. And she leads a party that that grew out of the ashes of Mussolini-aligned movements and also parts of Silvio Berlusconi's party. They're the leading party. It's, it's almost certain that she's going to end up as the prime minister. And so then what you have for the first time is one of the really significant EU powers being led by someone that's basically far right. It's what Marine Le Pen hasn't been able to do in France. And it really changes the ball game in how the EU deals with parties of that nature. Italy's too big to kick out of the summit table. It's too big to let its economy fail if they start breaking EU rules and you have to withdraw certain subsidies and so on. It really makes for a different discussion. And I think you will see, she may not team up with Viktor Orban in the obvious way, but I think she's going to have a very strong alliance with the Polish government. uh, And and that's going to be a, a pretty significant force in those EU politics. And some of the really traditional parties like the the Christian Democratic centre-right, they don't lead any of the big EU countries anymore. So it's kind of a a sea change that has happened very slowly, and then it's going to feel like it arrives very fast in the first week of October. Yeah, I mean, as you said, the Swedish Democrats are a far-right party that grew out of neo-Nazis, and now they're about to be in charge, possibly, in, in Sweden? Yeah, I have a little bit of skepticism that they would actually hold the prime ministership, for example, but they are the biggest party in the right wing bloc. And Sweden kind of appoints its prime minister in a very unusual way where people uh, have to vote sort of no confidence in the other people. So it's kind of like you don't get it through affirmative support. You get it via reverse negative support. And, and I they, can and see they a think scenario we're where it just takes two or three people to defect to make sure that the Swedish Democrats didn't take the prime ministership, it's more likely that they would take a leading role in a right-wing government. But then you have other questions about democracy. You have a party on 17% of the vote that finished third in the election choosing the prime minister. That doesn't feel great. And even if you were to choose the left-wing bloc, they've gotten less than 50% support from the public. So like every option is bad for Swedish democracy in this situation. So a tough time to be a Swede. Yes. And I don't know, it's tricky. Like Sweden, people may be overplaying the situation that the the country has been trying to absorb through increased levels of immigration and in particular refugees. But it does, there does seem to be evidence of a rise um, in particular forms of violent crime and murders. And that obviously sparks debate, even if it isn't statistically significant in the sense of sort of people being gunned down on the street everywhere, certainly nothing approaching American gun violence for what has been a ethnically homogenous country for a very long time, a very safe, low crime society. Those changes obviously have some meaning and is affecting public debate. And it's been building for a while. Like the Swedish Democrats didn't just come out of nowhere. They have been gradually increasing their level of support by two or three percent for five or six elections in a row. And now they're finally at the point where they can't be ignored. So this European right wave, is this mostly about immigration, about the economy? Is that where this is all really coming from? I think it's fairly similar to the origins of Trump, where you have elements of this sort of nativist backlash to immigration. And if people can't legitimately say their lives have been changed now, they do feel their lives will be changed. There will be many more climate refugees. Africa's population is exploding relative to Europe which is basically in decline. If it wasn't 
for immigration, Europe's population would be declining. And I think people feel that in their bones somehow. There are a bunch of people who have been economic losers from globalization processes. And there are people who do get talked down in public debate who are made to feel like their opinions don't count because they have been interested and flirted with parties like this in the past. So I do think there are elements of elitism. And also the bottom line is that Europe is a very fractured public debate. There's not a single debate in the way that there is in the United States or Canada. And yes, debates in North America are fractured by the internet, but people are mostly speaking the same language. You know, it's two languages in Canada, two languages in the United States, basically. It's 25 in Europe. There are 400 and something political parties that run in the European elections every five years. So for people to carve out their niche and to experiment with these tactics that have worked for Trump or other right-wing groups around the world, it's very possible for these nationalists to, to learn from these other global examples and to exploit the fact that it's pretty cheap now to target people with online advertising or other tactics. That just wasn't true 30 years ago, for example. And we have had two big recessions in the last 12 years. We didn't have them in the 20 years after the end of the Cold War. So you have a bunch of other factors that that make it easier for this to sort of build into the wave that we're seeing. So given all of this that we've talked about today, the UN General Assembly is coming up. It's really upon us. You've recently asked the question, is, is UNGA the new Davos? What is UNGA these days? And I don't know if that if it is the new Davos, I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm kind right, of open-minded right, right. about the answer at this point. What I mean by that thought is that uh, Davos is interesting because it brings people from a lot of different sectors together. It's not state-to-state -state diplomacy, even though you have many leaders there. You have a lot of corporate voices. Celebrities obviously love to go there because it's a glamorous place. They learned after a lot of protesting and pressure that they needed to include NGOs and other civil society voices. They've got youth movements that come along. They've embraced Greta like she's their own, even though she hates them. She thinks they're the problem, but they're quite happy to use her celebrity to, to stimulate debate. And I think you're seeing something similar in Unger. And now obviously Davos is very elite in terms of who can afford to go there and get the official passes and so on. You don't see that at the UN General Assembly. New York is just a very open city, a world capital, and it's a very easy platform on which to graft a kind of much richer series of debates than what you'd get from 100 leaders turning up and giving their five-minute speeches to their domestic audiences. Now, the question mark I have is, how is this getting us closer to the UN's global sustainable development goals? Like, are we anywhere closer to solving these problems because you had this big hunger festival in New York in September? I don't think there's any proof of that yet, but I don't think you can go back to a world where you don't let these other voices come to a table and, and look at these global challenges. And I'm, I'm doing a bit more reporting on that this week to sort of get more of a sample of what people are thinking, because there's definitely opinions on both sides. Some think it's a total circus that isn't achieving anything. Others think, you know, thank heavens that we have this space to come and have this unparalleled global dialogue that never got to happen in human history until now. You and other, you know, adroit reporters of UNGA also, you know, you spent a lot of time focusing on what's going on on the sidelines. What do you expect on the sidelines of this General Assembly? 
it's really funny because not more. Well, it's not funny that the Queen has died, but it is extremely unpredictable now because the Queen's funeral is occurring the day before the official program was due to kick off, or the day when the UN itself does a lot of its programming about its sustainable development goals. And so people obviously start to arrive the end of this week, all the reports start coming out, you see Climate Week, you see all these other side summits that occur. Um, and a lot of them are having to rethink their schedule. You know, is it a good time to be fundraising to fight AIDS and malaria and TB the day before the Queen's funeral if half the world's leaders aren't going to be there to give pledges or whip up support um, back home? And so a lot of people aren't confirming exactly what their plans are. It means you're going to see a lot of the leaders descend on New York on Tuesday morning. I don't know what that means for air traffic, but it's not good. <laughs> it's going to be hard to get all those people in. That might be a good time uh, so, for Americans to take the train. 100%. I actually decided yesterday I'm just going to like cycle, literally bicycle around <laughs> um, because I it, walking is a nightmare. People get blisters. They cannot move around in their cars. The subway is still a sweaty mess. So I think bikes are actually the way to go this year. Good for the environment, too. Yes, exactly. There we go. I'm, I'm living, I, I am embodying the UN's message. I should be one of their goodwill ambassadors or something. Well, you're a good man for doing it. And you're a good man for joining us today. Ryan, thanks so much for your time and for your really fantastic insights into all these things. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 